We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning. Today our scripture verse will be from Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 38 and then Nehemiah chapter 10 verses 28 to 39. So that's Nehemiah 9 verse 38, and then Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. And one more time, that is Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 28, and then Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 through the end. And actually, that last one, it's verse 38 of chapter 9. Correct myself. So verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest... The son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God.
Thank you, Philip, for reading. Thank you, Sam, for, for leading us in worship and worship team. Good morning. It's good to see you today. And I just want to say happy um, Mother's Day to, to all of the mothers in the room. On Mother's Day, it's a day uh, at Emmaus where um, our attendance goes down rather than up like every other church. And uh, part of that is that we have so many young families who travel and then go to church with, with their parents and, and those sorts of things. But um, for all of you who are here and you're a mother, I want to say happy Mother's Day to you. And, and we want to recognize that this is um, a day where... Um, it, it is a day of celebration for you and the fact that this is a, a heavy and weighty task that you have. Right? Your, your stewardship as a mother is a, is a stewardship of the gospel. Right? You're not just stewarding little lives that you're raising, but you're stewarding the gospel into those lives. It's an eternal task. And so we want to pray to that end in a moment that you would have patience and endurance and perseverance and wisdom and discernment of how to, how to shepherd and parent your children in such a way um, that they love Jesus. Right, we want to just pray that the Lord would, would give that to you in a moment. We also want to recognize today that um, Mother's Day is not just a day of celebration, but for many, it's also a day of pain. Right? It's a day of sadness or sorrow for various reasons. Uh, um, per- perhaps it's because you would love to be a mother. You're longing to be a mother, and the Lord has not blessed you in that way yet. And so there's pain around a day like today. Perhaps it's that you have lost a child, whether through miscarriage or through death um, post-birth, but you've, you've lost children, and there's a weightiness within your heart today at that. Perhaps it's because you have children, but they have wondered, they have rebelled, they've, they've rebelled against God, perhaps they're even estranged from you, and there's, there's pain in your heart in that sense as a mother um, today. Perhaps there's even some in the room who today's a, a hurtful, painful day because um, in, in your past you've had an abortion. And you deal with the regret and the shame of that daily. And then for many of us, there's the fact that we have lost mothers ourselves. Or we have had mothers who have abandoned us. Or who weren't healthy, who who didn't love us well. And we have that longing, that void in our lives. So we want to recognize that it is a day to celebrate moms, for sure. And the gift of mothers from God to us. And it's also a day to recognize there are many within our midst who have pain. To those of you who have pain, let me say this to you today. Your identity, your value, and your justification before God, and even your joy in life is not dependent upon your mothering. Right? It does not rest solely in the fact that you are a mother, but it rests in the fact that you are a daughter of the king. If you've placed your faith in Christ, that's where your joy comes from. If you've placed your faith in Christ, that's where your identity comes from, your value comes from. It is not in the fact that you are a mother or are not, that you mother well or mother poorly, that you've had grave sins in your past or haven't, or even in the fact, church, that we have or don't have strong relationships with our mothers today. Our value, our identity, our justification, our joy, they come in the blood of Christ. And so today, let's celebrate. Let's eat good food. Let's let's give our mothers gifts. Let's let's celebrate in the ways that are appropriate within our homes to celebrate. But but let's also remember that the ultimate um, celebration that we have is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. All right, let's remember that today. We also want to pray today for our partnership in um, in Northern Italy uh, for Francesco and Claudia and, and the church there. Um, beginning this morning, throughout this week, we are um, on our church Instagram. We will be posting daily prayer requests for you to pray for, for that church in Italy. So we're inviting you into a um, strategic and intentional week of prayer for our partnership in Northern Italy. So if you don't follow us on Instagram yet, do that today, Emmaus KC, and, um, and follow along as we seek to pray and partner with them from, um, from, an oceans, from oceans apart. All right, so let's pray for those two things, and then we'll jump into our word. 
Jesus, we love you. Many of us long to love you more than we do. And we thank you today for the gift of mothers. Father, for the the idea that you had to place a mother within our lives to guide us and nurture us and love us and teach us. And Father, those who have had that celebrate that grace in our lives and, and those who have not mourned that loss, that loss that was brought from a simple world that was never intended to be. We thank you, Father, that one day you will come back for your bride and you will right all the wrongs. You will seek justice for all the injustice. The pain that we have experienced through loss, through grief, through death, through abandonment, through barrenness, Father, the grief that we have experienced, you will will right. You will give joy that we cannot even fathom in this day. And so we thank you that our hope is in you. And I pray that you would strengthen the women in this room who have pain today, the men in this room who are grieving um, brokenness or loss of mothers today. Father, I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that you'd give the women in this room who are longing for children um, and waiting, I pray that you would bless them that way. Father, would um, would you grant them the blessing of children? And then, Father, we pray for the mothers in this room that you would give them strength and endurance and patience and discernment to raise and shepherd their children to know and love Jesus above all. Father, would you be with Francesco and Claudia today? I think of them on a day like today where they are unable to have children. And Father, would you bless Claudia in a special way this morning? Would you comfort them and encourage them where they have feelings of loss? And would you... um, Give them joy in the midst of the many children that you have placed um, around their church and in their lives to care for. Father, would you bless their ministry? May they see people come to trust Jesus. And then, Father, would you speak to us through your word today? May you convict our hearts to seek obedience. May you point our eyes and our souls to Jesus where we lack obedience. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, I'll never lie to you again. Those are the words of my son, my wife, and I. Just after a moment of discipline, reconciliation, hugs. Okay, I'll never lie to you again. And our hearts sunk. And our hearts sunk in that. We, we, could feel, we could feel the lump of future failure gathering in our throats. We could smell the shame that would one day accompany the failure of such promises. A thousand such promises had come from my mouth, after all. Laying before the Lord at night in my bed, promising never to to enter into that sin again. Whether it be pride, or greed, or my temper, or lust. Many times, lasting a day, a week, a month to find myself right back to the broken promise, the broken covenant that I had made. Sure, there were times and there have been sins that we have found victory over and that we've, we've conquered by the power of the Spirit that are distant in our past. But sin always raises its head up in another way in our life. 
always there to remind us that we're incapable of keeping our promise. I'll never lie again. So we looked to our son in this moment. We said, Asa, we hope that is true. We hope that you never tell us a lie again. We pray that that is true. We know that you will. You will sin again. You are a promise breaker. Sin has made you so. But Asa, there will never be a lie that you tell that mom and dad won't be ready to love you in the midst of. Our love does not end the day that you tell us another lie. It doesn't change from this day to the day that you don't lie to the day that you lie again. There's love and there's mercy and there's discipline and there's correction and there's love and there's mercy over and over again. And he looked up at us with this big smile and said something profound like, look at this rock. (laughs) And the conversation was over. The teaching moment was done. And he lied again the next day. (laughs) I'm sure you've been there in this situation, whether with your children or with yourself, right? Where, Where there's this bold promise of obedience, this bold oath of life change, and then failure. And then failure. We find ourselves in this text in Nehemiah in a place similar to this that we've been looking at the last couple weeks where they've realized, they've looked back at the history of their people and they've seen failure after failure followed by mercy after mercy. The people would fail and God would be merciful and the people would fail and God would be merciful. And even in his, even in his discipline of them, even in leading them into exile, he was still being merciful. His discipline was not wrath, but an act of mercy to correct them and to restore them. For in the midst of that discipline, he didn't wipe them out. He didn't ignore them. He didn't forsake them. He didn't turn his back from them. He didn't leave them and choose another people, but he remained faithful to them. And we see that because he has now brought them back to Jerusalem, reestablished the temple, reestablished the city, reestablished their priesthood, and he's brought them to a place of worship and obedience again. And we see, we saw through chapter 9, this, uh, their picture of looking at failure and mercy, failure and mercy, and their response of weeping and confession and crying out for help. And at the end of 39, we read today, and we talked about last week, they enter into a covenant. Right? Just, just read it again. Chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all of this, we made a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents and the names of our princes and our Levites and our priests. They signed a document, a firm covenant, a covenant in writing, and and then they signed it. Those of you who are here who are covenant members, like you have some understanding of this. That there is a covenant that you have signed in paper, put your name on saying, we will obey the Lord in these ways and believe the Lord about these things. Right? It's a signed covenant that you've entered into saying, this is my lifestyle and this is my belief. That is what they've done with each other here. That's what they've done before the Lord here. And so they sign this. Now, chapter 10 Verses 1 through 27 are the names of those who have signed this. 
We didn't skip over that for the sake that there's nothing of value there. There's great value there. When you look at the names and you look at other names throughout the book of Nehemiah and you, and you line up things, we're just not reading that part for the sake of time. But the list that he has written here, the, the, the names that have signed this, these are the priests, the Levites, the rulers of the people who have signed on behalf of the people. But it's not just someone signing on behalf of the people. The people have taken an oath as well. Verse 28. Verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all those who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of our Lord, of, our, of the Lord, our, um, excuse me, all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Right, so, so it's not just like the people are here and some others sign and now you're like, oh, you're just kind of stuck in it. Right, kind of like if someone else signed on your behalf and you're like, man, I'm just kind of stuck in that. All of the people are entering into this oath together and these people are signing on behalf of them. Right, they've separated themselves and they're entering into this oath. And what is the oath? Well, big tent oath is this, obedience in every way. Verse 29. Join with their brothers and their nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. So their commitment, their covenant is to obey everything that God has commanded them to do, to which we give a hearty, <laughs> yeah, right, but that's not going to happen. You're not going to keep that. Or perhaps it's just my cynicism that thinks that way. Perhaps you thought, maybe they'll do this. But when I read that, I go, there is no way they're doing that. Just like when my son said, I'll never lie to you again. There's no way. They've said, we will obey everything that he's commanded us to do. All of it. All of it. A thousand years of history that they just read have told them this is impossible. Failure and mercy, failure and mercy, failure and mercy, over and over again. And now they say, well, we're not going to do that anymore. The pattern ends today. Today we stop that. Today we're faithful in all ways. And notice this phrase, a curse and an oath. Did you see that? Did that stand out to you? They enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. What does this mean? Right, the idea within scripture is that when you enter into an oath, you're also entering into a curse. You're making a promise, and that brings with it ramifications if you do not keep that promise. For those of you who have signed the membership covenant, let's illustrate it this way. You signed the membership covenant saying, we will live this way, and we will believe these things. And what is the curse that comes with the covenant? If we do not, then we enact church discipline right? It's the curse along with the oath, a curse along with the covenant. We make an oath to do this, and if we don't, there's a ramification to it. And it's a just ramification, a right ramification, a right consequence. We will obey all that the Lord has done, and if we do not, he has the right to discipline us, 
It is just for him to discipline us. It is good for him to do that. This is their curse and their oath. Which makes me just think about the idea that perhaps we should rename ours the membership curse instead of the membership covenant. Today we get to sign the membership curse. I'm a cursed member at Emmaus Church. Right? Perhaps it would cause some of us who have taken the covenant lightly to not take it so lightly. But so far that idea has been shot down by everyone. So we will not do that. Thanks for helping me think through that this morning. It's a curse with an oath. On this, Fincham says, curse is something so closely related to covenant that it functions as a synonym of covenant. They sign this oath. They sign this covenant. They enter into this. And the broad tent, the big tent, is we're going to obey everything. But then they list specifics as well. We will obey all the commands of the Lord, specifically these things. To sum up what we were about to see, they commit to these things specifically. We will not marry those who don't worship the true God. See that in verse 30. We will keep the Sabbath. We see this in verse 31. And we will not neglect the house of God, verses 32 through 39. Right? We will not marry those who don't worship the true God. We'll keep the Sabbath and will not neglect the house of God. All three of these commitments of obedience can be summed up like this. We will love the glory of God more than comfort for self. We will love the glory of God more than comfort for self. Or you could say we will trust that true joy and security comes in obedience to God rather than the comfort, security, and happiness of our own efforts. They're making an oath to trust God making an oath that obedience matters more than self. Let me show you. Verse 30. Verse 30, it says this. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take our daughters for our sons. In other words, we will not marry those who do not worship the true God. This isn't an issue of of multiracial marriage. This is an issue of multi-faith marriage. Those who don't believe God versus those who do trust in God. And God is protecting his people from the contamination that comes from those who are idol worshipers entering into the people of God. He says, do not marry them. See, many at this time would marry for security. They would marry for security. It was often advantageous to marry women who did not worship God because business trade partnerships were created through marriage. Safety, loyalty, alliances were formed through marriage. And so it was advantageous to marry someone who was powerful, who had a strong alliance, who was advantageous to your family's business or to your advancement in the culture. And so they would neglect what the person's faith was in order to advance or promote or protect self. Perhaps there were some who were marrying for love. (laughs) Guy sees girl. Guy thinks girl's cute. Guy has conversation with girl. Guy likes girl. Guy doesn't care who girl worships. Guy marries girl. That pattern. And perhaps there were some in that situation. Dad, I'm going to marry her. I don't care what you say. And they're marrying those who don't worship God because of their affections, because their desire to make self happy in the moment, because they can't imagine anything giving them more joy than that person. So they disobey the commandments of God to seek their own joy and protection and happiness in that moment. But marriage to those who do not worship the true God is dangerous for you 
and it's confusing for others, both jeopardizing the displayed glory of God in your life. It's dangerous for you, and it's confusing to others, jeopardizing the displayed glory of God in your life. Paul even talks about this in 2 Corinthians 6.14, when he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, and what fellowship has light with darkness? It is unwise. You should not be there. You should not enter into that. So if you're here and you're not yet married and are a Christian, to enter into a relationship that is leading to marriage with someone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are doing so in direct obedience to God, disobedience to God. Stop it. Break it off. Face the pain now because obedience to God brings more joy than your disobedience with that person. In verse 31, we see the second thing that they do. It says this, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. And the second thing they do is they, they make an oath, they vow, they covenant to keep the Sabbath. We're not going to buy and sell on the Sabbath. They're committing to giving up profit for obedience. They're committing to giving up profit in exchange for obedience. Obedience is more important to them than the profit of buying and selling on the Sabbath. If they don't buy on the Sabbath, they could be missing out on good deals. If they don't buy on the Sabbath, they could be missing out on a business partnership that could be formed through that purchase. If they don't sell on the Sabbath, they're missing out on a dollar today that they might not get tomorrow. And they're saying, we're going to neglect that. We're going to avoid that. We're not going to do that. We're going to lose that because obedience is more important. It's more important to obey God and to take a day of rest from providing for ourselves, from caring more for ourselves, from trusting ourselves more than we trust God, for seeking to advance ourselves. It's more important to rest from that, to rest in God than to seek gain. And then in verse 32 through 39, by the way, also under the Sabbath, they also agree not to raise crops, not to harvest crops on the seventh year. So they're giving up a day every week of profit and a year out of every seven of profit, trusting the Lord. And then third, verses 32 through 39, they say that we will not neglect the house of God. That's how they end it in verse 39. 32 through 39, they go through this list this list of ways that they're going to give, right? That they're going to give of their tithes to the temple. They're going to give of offerings to the temple. They're going to give the first fruits of everything that they have, cattle, um, grain, children to the temple so that the people of God could be cared for and taken care of because the temple of God's cared for and taken care of. They're giving so that the Levites could have um, had provision so that they could care for the temple and, and they're giving so that the temple grounds could be maintained and they're giving so that the priests could, could care for the people of God. They're giving to this. And when they give to this, it means that they're taking from themselves. They're sacrificing what they had as security, what they had as their, their own, what they had to fall back on, what they had to purchase what they wanted. They're sacrificing that for the sake of caring for the people of God through the temple of God for obedience to God. 
In verse 35, they even use this phrase, we obligate ourselves. We're obligated to do this. This is our responsibility. You see, to this point, the building of the wall, the temple being rebuilt, the, the, maintaining of, um, uh, the maintaining of religious practices within the Persian Empire was funded by the Persian Empire. The king would send funds to maintain your religious practice. He valued multiple religions, and he wanted multiple people to be able to worship in their own way, and he would fund their worship. And the people of God here are going, no longer are we going to be dependent upon those from the outside to fund our worship, because then we're dependent upon them. Instead, we're going to obligate ourselves to do this so that we never have to stop worshiping again. The temple will be cared for by us. It's more important to obey God in giving than to build your own financial security. Take ownership of his temple. So in summary of these things, they say, we will love the glory of God more than the comfort of self. We will trust the true joy and security and, and, uh, that comes in obedience to God rather than the comfort and security and happiness of our own efforts. We'll trust God to be our provider rather than trusting ourselves for provision. They make these oaths. They make these covenants. I want to give you three pastoral charges. This does not mean that I'm two minutes away from ending. One of them is long. <laughs> two pastoral charges today. Pastoral charge number one. Glorify God by obeying all of his commandments. Glorify God by obeying all of his commandments commandments. Do not be lazy in your obedience. Do not be choosy in your obedience. As Sam led us in confession, do not make excuses for your disobedience. Do not rename it to get by with it not being a sin in your mind and in your heart. Take it upon yourself. Be obligated. Make an oath. Make a big promise, a big commitment that you will glorify God by obeying all of his commandments. Obey God in your dating and marriage relationships. Obey him by keeping the Sabbath, taking a day of not working, a day of rest, a day of not providing for yourself, a day of trusting God. By the way, a rest is a commandment for you, Jesus says. He says, Sabbath was not created for, our man was not created for Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man. In other words, your Sabbath is a command to rest and refresh, a command to trust and believe command to marvel and wonder, a command for joy and for security. Like it's for your good to take a day where you remind yourself to rest in who God is and his, him as the provider and him as the caregiver, him as the forgiver rather than yourself. Obey God by generously giving for the glory of God. Obey him by generously giving for the glory of God. Give to the church for the ministry, the care and the leadership of the church. Trust in God's protection of his provision for you more than you trust in your own. Trust God and be generous in obedience to him. And these are just the three examples they give us. This is where we fall back to what has been said for, I believe, the last four weeks in Nehemiah. Know the word of God so that you may know what to obey. Study the word, read the word, be in the scriptures so that you know what the word of God says, so that you know what obedience is and what disobedience is, and then obey the word of God. 
even if it appears to cost you everything today. Obey it. Pastoral charge number one, glorify God by obeying God's commandments. Do not take that lightly, church. Pastoral charge number two, glorify God by looking to Jesus when you fail to obey all of his commandments. Glorify God by looking to Jesus when you fail to obey all of his commandments. See, it sounds ridiculous for these people to make the promise that they made. We will keep everything. And yet it was right for them to make that. Their heart was right in this. Their desire was right. They had seen the mercy of God and it propelled them. It made them long to be obedient. And many of you have been there longing for obedience. Maybe it's in our moments of confession here on Sunday mornings when you realize your sin. Maybe it's through a song that we sing that that makes you realize God's faithfulness to you in the midst of your sin. Maybe it's when you are overwhelmed with conviction in some other way, in some other setting, and you long to be obedient in all things. It is not wrong to make a declaration to the Lord. We will be faithful in everything. That's what I long to do. That's my commitment to you. It is right. It is good. And it is impossible. But do not let the impossibility of that oath cause you not to make it and to push for it, to try for it. Rather, let the impossibility of the oath cause you to look to Jesus when you fail it, when you fall, when you sin again. This is why John Piper says that their covenant truly is a curse. They could not and they would not keep it. Neither can you. This is where our question of what time is it that we've been asking is so good for us. It is so good for us. You see, if we fast forward to chapter 13, I'm going to steal Pastor Sam's thunder from a few weeks from now. We fast forward to chapter 13 in this book. In chapter 13, Nehemiah has gone back to to the Persian Empire, and now he comes back to Jerusalem to visit again. And when he comes back, here's what he finds. He finds that they have broken everything they've made an oath to keep. Specifically, chapter 13 says the people are marrying women of other religions. Chapter 13 says the people are working, selling, and buying on the Sabbath. Chapter 13 says the people have ceased giving to the temple and therefore neglected the care of the temple and the provision for the Levites and the priests, so much so that the Levites and the priests are now working in the fields to make their own provision because no one's providing for them. And if you remember a guy by the name of Tobiah earlier in this book. Tobiah, the great taunter of God's people. The guy with that great comeback of, of, uh, yeah, if a fox touches your wall, it'll fall down. That Tobiah. Tobiah has now moved into the temple courts and taken up residence within the temple. The people of God have completely neglected their oath in a couple chapters. They've forsaken their God. We are like the Jews At this time of Nehemiah, we are like these people. We too find ourselves to be unfaithful over and over and over. We too have great need of confession and of a reformed life, living in obedience to God's commands. We too have made bold oaths, strong covenants of faithfulness. We too have broken our oath time and time again, embracing disobedience, neglecting the glory of God. We too find that no matter how many times we say, okay, I won't lie to you again, we keep lying. We keep lusting. 
We keep harboring bitterness. We keep fearing. We keep doubting. We are very much like them. But we're not just like them. We're not identical to them. We do not have to hope in our own ability to obey. Nor do we have to hope without assurance that God will show us mercy if we fail to obey again. See, they did not have Jesus to look to. They could look to God's mercy in the past, but would he be merciful tomorrow? Or is the next time we break this oath the last straw? Is the curse too great for us? They had prophecy, but they had not seen it fulfilled. But us, at this time, looking back on this side of Christ, we get to look back to the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross, and we get to know that his mercy is there tomorrow. For everything that needed to be done to purchase mercy for your disobedience has already been done. The mercy is bought and the mercy is applied. So when we make a big oath to obey and we fail tomorrow, or some of us before we even get past lunch today, there's mercy because of the blood of Jesus. Romans 3, 23 through 25 tells us this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See, Paul's saying none of us can keep our oath of obedience to God's commands. We all have fallen short of that. We all have made, um, but, but we are not made righteous by keeping our oath of obedience. Rather, we're made righteous by the blood of Jesus. That is our righteousness. This redemption, this righteousness that's received by faith in Jesus. This is how a righteous, holy, sinless God shows mercy to unrighteous, unholy, sinful humans through the blood of Jesus. We are assured of God's mercy if we have faith in Jesus because of his shed blood to buy our redemption. Every time God showed mercy to someone in the Old Testament, it was because of the blood of Jesus. When Adam and Eve disobeyed and they did not die on the spot and God showed mercy and God gave them a promise. He was looking forward to the blood of Jesus. When he showed mercy to Noah and his family, allowing them to survive the flood, he did so because of the blood of Jesus. When he showed mercy to David for his adultery and his murder, he did so because of the blood of Jesus. And when he showed mercy to his people in Nehemiah, after they failed to keep their oath made in Nehemiah 10, he did so because of the blood of Jesus. This is the wonderful news because when he shows mercy to you and I, though we pridefully run back to our sin over and over again and are absolutely incapable of keeping our oaths of obedience, he does so. Every time you lust, every time you fear, every time you disobey, every time you look at porn, every time you're angry, every time there's bitterness, he forgives you and he shows you mercy, not because of anything that you've done, not because of your ability to keep that oath. He does it because of Jesus' blood. He looks to the blood of Jesus and every sin and every failure you have, and he looks there and he calls you clean. It's Jesus' blood which causes you to have mercy. 
It's wonderful news because it means every one of us in this room can receive mercy if we'll only place faith in Jesus. And it's wonderful news because it means everyone in your family that you'll gather with around a table this afternoon can have mercy if they'll only place their faith in Jesus. And everyone you pass on the street today as you leave this place can have mercy. They'll only place their faith in Jesus. I pray that every one of us will leave here today with two assurances branded upon our hearts. With three assurances branded upon our hearts. One, we are unequivocally responsible and required to live in absolute obedience to God's commands. Two, we are unequivocally unable to keep our oaths of obedience to all of his commands. And three, we are unequivocally guaranteed the mercy of God if we place our faith in Jesus. So I charge you, church, to obey the commands of God. Obey them for your joy. Obey them for his glory. I charge you to look at your, not to look to your ability or your disability to obey, but to look to Jesus. And when you have shame, and when you have guilt, and when the enemy says, see, he can't show mercy to you another time. You've done this too much. Look to Jesus and point. With tears welling up with your eyes, with a lump of, I can't handle this in your throat. Look to Jesus. With, with a smirk of disbelief, with laughter of joy, look to Jesus and say, you're right, I have done this one too many times, but his blood covers it still. His blood covers it still. Find your life in Jesus. What a joy to find our assurance in the mercy of Jesus rather than the obedience of self. What a joy. Communion, church, is a reminder. It's a reminder of our inability to obey. It's because of our inability to obey that Christ had to shed his blood and break his body. It reminds us, it's a reminder that Jesus completely obeyed even to the point of death on the cross, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And it's a reminder that all who place their faith in him have mercy and that one day we'll get to gather at the feast of the lamb together. And so church, we invite you to come take today to break the bread and to take the wine and to, to, to drink, to remember Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never placed your faith in him, we ask you not to come take, but rather to stay in your seat. Today, your invitation is to take Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to turn to Jesus and to look at his blood shed for you on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and to say, I need that to take him. If you have questions about that, ask one of us. We'd love to talk to you after the service about that. Let me pray for you then. You're invited to come take. Exit to your right. Come down and take. If you're gluten-free, we have gluten-free option at the last table. Jesus, you are gracious and kind to us. Far beyond what we deserve. So today, we thank you for that. We celebrate that. And today, we take this communion as an act of remembrance and as an act of rest knowing that our disobedience that will follow at some point today has already been guaranteed mercy because of your shed blood. And so may our faith in Jesus increase. May our hope and our assurance be firmed up, not because of our ability to make big covenants, but because you have your already shown mercy through the blood of Jesus. I pray these things in your name. 
Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.